Welcome to the Media Mavens podcast, where you'll hear the most compelling, provocative, and real conversations with industry leaders and innovators in tech, sports, and entertainment with our host and CEO of well-known PR firm, Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Media Mavens podcast. We're here with our good friend, Brian Seth Hurst. CEO of StoryTech Immersive and one of my favorite humans on the planet these days. Hi, Brian. Hello, you too. You've been chasing me for over a year. And all no, I no, no, you, no. A year and one month. To ask you how you were doing, and now I'm doing this. So, <laughs> actually, we hit our one year anniversary in September with the awesome. podcast. And actually, Marjorie and I were at a Dodgers game. <laughs> On the same day That's that we were playing. Celebrate. Well, the same day that Margie wanted to go to this thing because one, this preference, Hello Kitty night. We got cute little ski hats. We were playing. LA was playing the D-backs. I'm an AZ girl. Arizona's home. And it was on the anniversary of our podcast. So I thought it was fitting. And we, we told the story through social media, which is why I'm excited to have you on here because you are so well known in the digital and tech industry for storytelling, utilizing VR, all the immersive technology. So I thought it was such a good time to have you on, Brian, because given everything the past year and a half, like we just talked about this before we were on the podcast, like life is a story. It depends how you tell it. And so many people are adapting and embracing leaning into tech because of COVID and, you know, podcast came out of this. We leaned into tech and now we have this podcast. So we want to chat with you about what are some of the best ways to tell your story to reach an audience? And I'm not talking, hey, let me push out a product, crank it down your throat. I'm talking about to inspire, motivate others by using text. And uh, we have so much well, out you know, there. I don't... The, the, I've been a writer for as long as I can remember. And when you're a writer and you're creating a story world, which is the way I look at things, I mean, and there are many... You know, there are many ways to create story worlds. I mean, look, Star Trek is a story world. The Bible is a story world. Christmas is a story world. But the thing is, when you're writing a story, you really, you know, you want to have Suzanne Dunn on. That's just a thought for her new book, which is The Anatomy of Desire, because that is a brilliant, immersive audio story. Anyway, you want to create a story world and you want people to be in your world. You want them to enter your world. You want them to experience it. And the reason I love VR and the reason I got into it was because, and I had seen it first in like 1991, I was at the University of British Columbia and I saw a prototype of something in the future. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to remember this and this is what I'm going to do. But when Samsung released their first headset and I put it on, I cried because I thought, my gosh, this is what I've been waiting for. I had the opportunity to welcome people into a story world. And it's like a dream. It's like when I, Right. I dream what I'm writing around me. So I feel it, I see it, and I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity in terms of VR. So what I did was kind of left off what I was doing, really devoted myself as I as I have in the past, like I did with the combination of the internet and television coming together. I formed a company called Tandem Intermedia as the two were coming together because I saw what the possibilities were. Well, with VR, I really saw what the possibilities were for cinematic VR, not necessarily interactive, but cinematic because, and I know people say it's an empathy medium, but I wasn't looking for people to feel empathy. I was looking for them to feel a part of the world that I was creating. And so I did a lot of homework, a lot of research. And then I went to all my connections from the television business and it's really hard to explain VR if no one's ever been in it. And so, you know, we went to Showtime, we went to PBS, we we went to even companies, we went to Marriott. And, you know, it was all about educating people about VR. And both Showtime and PBS gave me the opportunity to work with them to tell stories in VR. And so I found two really wonderful young filmmakers through a film festival. I happened to be like, Getting on an airplane in like 25 minutes from where I was, I had like two minutes to run through this film festival. And I put on the headset and I saw this thing called Real from Connor Hare and Alex Meter. And I was like, I'm going to work with these guys. So when PBS asked me, they said, you know, we're doing Mercy Street and we'd like to we'd like to plunk down a camera in the middle of the hospital so that people know what it's like to be in the hospital. I'm like, well, we don't do that. What we do is we tell stories. It's not about just plunking a camera down. 
And I said, what if we told the story? We'll give you three ideas. And one of the ideas was two brothers fighting on opposite sides of the Civil War. Before we knew it, we were on location. And the great thing was, is that these filmmakers, and we worked with Marcy Jastro from Technicolor, and we worked with Michael Mansory from Radiant. What we really managed to do was innovate in order to tell the story we wanted to tell. So it was the first time you had true slow motion in VR. It was the first time you had camera movement like we did in VR. And that was what I always saw. Then when the pandemic came, long story short, I had been approached by Scott Suskind and Chris Matheny. They were working with a woman named Sovereign Williams from Creative Acts and Gina Belafonte from San Colfa. And they had a program already in place to use storytelling to help the incarcerated tell their own stories and deal with the trauma that they had been through. And they wanted to use VR and they wanted to use VR to let the incarcerated know not just what the world was outside to inspire them, but also to figure out what the triggers would be during release and to use VR to create a re-entry program. And I thought, oh Wait, my did you, gosh. Did you guys actually go into... I just want to kind of cut in here and interject. Yeah, sorry, I could talk forever. I'm a storyteller. What do you want? I know, but you just can't say, hey, stop talking. You're on a podcast. But like, did I want to pivot around? Like, you know, I want to kind of not focus only on VR. There's so much out there for us to chat about right now. But just kind of, did you guys actually go into the prisons and talk to these guys and get their permission, explain what it was going on? And do you guys, and has it helped them? Like, do they want to do it? Or was it more of a kind of virtual? They loved it. Creative Acts, which you can look up online, they've been going into prisons. They came out of Tim Robbins' original program, which he established, I think, after Shawshank Redemption. But they wanted to go in and teach writing and acting to the incarcerated. And so when they came about this, they said, well, we're going to have a couple of days with people who are formerly incarcerated to interview them to find out what triggers them in the real world. And then we'll create a pilot program which will go to, they were already working inside the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, will go into a state prison, which happened to be a level four maximum security unit, and work with the prisoners and have them see the pilot and have them see how they reacted. They loved it. I took my breath away. I've never had such a profound experience of human beingness in my life listening to the stories that these gentlemen were telling about their lives and their experiences. And so it's a week's program. I came in on the last day to, you know, as the guy who does VR and it blew me away. So yes, the answer was we consulted with formerly incarcerated before we went in. Gina and Sabra created the program we filmed in December. We had this like very, very short window when suddenly things were open and then they were closed again. So we filmed a pilot in a restaurant, what it's like to have to order off a menu when you have so many choices and to be amongst people. And that was used for the pilot program. And then Chris Matheny and myself, we, we curated a selection of VRs from all around the world, tourist videos, standing in the middle of Times Square, just really wonderful experiences so to kind of get their reaction and everything yes and they they absolutely loved it but i think the thing about it. it is whether i mean i think it's a tremendous project you're working on but i feel like no matter what who doesn't want to talk and tell their story i mean i know there's a good and the bad people who just want to hear themselves talk but i think when you really want to tell your story through life you got to understand you're not the only one who is in that situation. There's so many other people, regardless of what the story is, it's your story in on the narrative. But if you could inspire or motivate one other person based on your story, you know, whether it's strength, leadership, something you did that gave them the strength to do what they wanted. We all have a story to tell. I just think it's different on every platform. I love the VR aspect of it, but I want to kind of pivot. You know, we have Facebook, we have social media, now we have TikTok and I know there's a bunch of madness on there and everything. But like, I think we have so many different platforms that tell our story right now besides VR. And I think the important thing is for people that be authentic and humbleness is what makes you likable and approachable. I mean, when it comes to the brands, people don't buy a brand because for whatever reason, it's cheaper. Some do. 
but we know the backstory to the story. That's where the loyalty comes from. So I think everybody needs to learn how to tell their story. And I don't think there's enough of it out there right now. You know, when you talk about, there's so many levels. You have, you have professional storytellers who are trained in craft and story arc and building worlds and characters. And then what you're talking about on a social media point of view, those are individuals telling their stories and actually, in my experience, branding themselves. I remember um, listening to a rabbi's sermon on High Holy Days about how she had talked to this woman early in the morning who was having a really, really hard time with her family and her kids and her husband. And it was just like chaos. And she was kind of reaching out to the rabbi. They were friends. And they were just talking. And now 20 minutes later, this woman put a picture of a happy family at their home having brunch. And the rabbi's point was, that's the story she wants you to see. And not the story she probably wouldn't want other people to know. That's perception is reality. And the the point, the rabbi's point was, if you need help and you're not telling the truth in your story, who's going to be able to help you? You know, so I, I mean, there are different levels of storytelling. I, I have kind of weaned myself off social media for various reasons. I mean, it can be a real time suck. But the other thing is I use social media, the stories that I want to tell, like with Happenstance Chef and my cooking show. I mean, I know that my purpose in that is to uplift, to give people an opportunity to have fun. With Happenstance Chef, we leave every mistake that I make in the video. You know, and I've had many things go wrong. And the reason we leave everything in is because that's what happens, you know. But in that case, it's not me telling my story per se. It's me cooking and telling you the story behind the recipe or telling you the story behind the the mixer or the pots and pans that I'm using or essential kitchen tools, which have been handed down in my family. Because anybody can give you a recipe and walk you through it. I don't think that's much fun. I want to add stories because food is where is where we gather to tell our stories i mean it's in the kitchen it's at the dinner table it's you know food is the thing that it's like a catalyst for storytelling and so that was my aim in doing that but i think knowing what story you want to tell if you're a professional storyteller like the stories that i look at telling i've been asked to produce things that don't resonate with me and i say no i mean it could be a great story but I remember someone coming to me to produce a reality television show. And I felt that it would do so much damage to this family that I actually declined. And they was like, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't want to see your kids' lives ruined well, by reality television. Yeah, so. I think, and I want, and I know I, I can ask Mags and I hit you at the same time. So I'm going to kind of let you interject, right? Well, I, I do think that's very interesting what you were just saying about mental health social media telling one story when the story's not accurate and i know that you've done like so many amazing things throughout your your career one of the things that i wanted to touch on was if you look back in your career like how you really told stories across multiple platforms i mean you were the founder of the true cross platform so maybe you can talk a little bit about how you came up with that concept and how it really evolved to what we see today in terms of people using multiple platforms to tell their story. You're the godfather of storytelling, Brian. I don't think so, but okay. Um, it actually was a brand story. It was in the beginning. I was working at Pittard Sullivan and I was the head of Convergence or Convergent Media. It was a long time ago. It was 1998. And TV Guide wanted to do a rebrand. They had been a magazine and they'd been a television channel. And so I was got to be the strategist on it. And the idea was, well, how do you maintain consistency of brand and experience across platforms? How are you going to tell the TV Guide story? And so, I mean, we created a whole brand architecture that would work across multiple platforms. So, I mean, we're talking about putting TV Guide on a Palm Pilot as well as a set-top box, as well as the internet, as well as having its own channel and having a brand architecture system. And it was the whole reason I was hired, or my, actually my company was bought, I, Tandem Intermedia was bought by Peter Sullivan, was because we understood the synergies back in 98 between the internet and television. And so 
that multiple, and I never used the word transmedia. I hated the word. I still don't like the word. But the idea that you want to go to where the audience is living, that was the whole strategy behind that for me. That was my phrase, which was go to where the audience lives. And so depending upon the demographic and the psychographic and all that data that we had, what story were we going to tell and how are we going to move people from one platform to the other? And I think that in 2010, which is all those years later, when I worked with Tim Kring on Conspiracy for Good, I mean, that was cross-platform storytelling. And to get to produce that and to work with Tim was an honor and it was thrilling. And, and we worked with Nokia and the idea was... It was a story of the Conspiracy for Good was a, a story that started out online and on mobile and then burst into the real world and made London the playing field over four weekends in a month where people went and they tried to solve this mystery. And Tim, being the storyteller that he was, he knew exactly how to create that story world. And then what we did was... It was more than a, than an alternative reality game because it was so cross-platform. And, and the whole point was to do social good. The whole point was to raise money to build a library for real in Chateka Village and to also distribute to books to kids who couldn't afford them through wegetbooks.org. And we did well, over a million users and 10,000 books got and the library got built. So this was like, boy, real social action. And this was before it was kind of, same time around Tom's shoes, buy one, give one. And so I called it social benefit storytelling back then. But yeah, it was going to where the audience lives, using the platform for what it did best. And in this case with Nokia, it was using augmented reality to have people hold their phones up and get clues so they could go to the next place. It was brilliant. I think but it's all about the immersive experience. I mean, we keep, I think everybody's throwing around that word immersive a lot. I don't think they really understand what it means, but if you could bring somebody into that immersive world to be part of your story or do you want to be part of theirs, I think that's where the real experience and the real gold nugget is to storytelling. Well, you, so, can, you, know. you can never have the tail wag the dog. That's why the name of the company is Story Tech Immersive because story always comes before technology. So you don't put the bells and whistles in because you can. You put them in because they enhance or drive the story forward, give you insights that you need to move forward in the story. There are so many immersive technologies. First of all, radio and podcasts, it's a great immersive technology. You know, radio was the first immersive technology with all the sound effects and people gathering around their radio and listening, you know, in terms of immersive broadcast. But now, you know, you have the word, and this just fries me on some level that. Facebook is trying to co-opt the word meta and metaverse. I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels that way because the metaverse has been around since Snow Crash, since the book. And so now when you look at it, technology, this whole last two years has let people know that technologies are the tools that they can use to tell their stories, but also the tools that they can connect. But they're also story-worlding tools. So a metaverse to me is a story world. And there will be entertainment in the metaverse. There will be, and you'll be able to own pieces of that metaverse like you own real estate. And you'll be able to own, you know, with NFTs and all of that. But you don't have anything until you have a great story with great characters. It's not the, it's not the what of story that changes. It's the how. It's how technology is used, much to your point in the opening, sir. It's how technology is used to tell those stories. And so you could have dome as an immersive technology, but you have to create for that medium to the max. You can have virtual reality. You can have augmented reality. You can have, again, this is why Anatomy of Desire was so great because that audio book made me feel like I was sitting in the courtroom, like I was in the gallery, but also it was so well-written and it was such an amazing story. And it was using a format that was brand new. And I'm not going to give that away. I'm just going to say, and I earn nothing for promoting them. But the Go Get is by L.L. Dorn and it's Anatomy of Desire and I would get the audiobook. But yeah, I think maxim using each platform as a set of tools, it's like having a paint box with a set of colors. People don't realize how important sound is in any medium. You know, storytellers in VR, sound is like the forgotten thing. So immersive sound to me is very important to direct attention using light and sound and 
And, the, you know, I could go on, but cinematographers are storytellers and editors are the key storytellers to me. So my job as a producer is to line up the absolute best in resources and most cases for the stories that the writers and directors want to tell. It's not that I don't kibitz and get in and, you know, give feedback on scripts and things like that. But my job is to give them everything they need to tell the story they want to tell and get out of the way so they can tell it. I am the go-between between the network and the financiers and whoever, because I want to shield my storytellers and my directors from bullcrap. You know, so I will deal with the network. I will deal with the executives. I want to make it so that they can tell the story that they can tell. And the best producers to me are the people who can assemble the absolute best people that are right to tell that story. So that was a long a, answer. I have a question for you. I mean, not to go political on you, but like, and I'm so tired of hearing people drop metaverse, metaverse to make them sound like they're so important and up to speed. It's just the same stuff that we all work in the tech space. I mean, Zuckerberg wanted to call it the metaverse. All he wants to do is leverage out and advance and innovate the VR on Facebook to have a more of a virtual experience. I mean, and I, I think there's a good and bad to social media in general. I think a lot of social media, Facebook, for example, Instagram, like we and Marjorie talked about, people are posting things that aren't realistic. I, I get the little bunny ears on, what's the one that we always do? The bunny ears on Snapchat. But when people completely alter their look and face or post stuff, people read into it. It hurts people's feelings. People lie and steal. And they use, I just, the people are using social media in such a dangerous way that it's just people use it in a bad way to get attention for the wrong reasons or to lie. And you always have a digital footprint. But I feel like this whole metaverse thing is just another spin on trying to coin a term to make him more money and to make him look more godly like in the social media and the internet world by using the word metaverse, but it's just VR. We've been sitting on VR for so long. It's actually, it's a lot more than VR because it's an economy unto itself as well. Yeah. Well, like we said, we're not the only VR. one building a metaverse. You know, you have 3M just announced that they're building a metaverse. Yeah. You have Niantic that's building a metaverse. You have everyone is corporations will build a metaverse in which they'll put retail environments. Hotel chains will build metaverses to give people an experience. It's kind of like Second Life on steroids. But it's more than that because it's an economy. Because NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and being able to own art and pieces, that will become very realistic in those environments. So I don't think it's just him. I think it's, you know, there's a land grab going on right now for metaverses. It's the wild, wild west for metaverse, right? So was this country once the wild, wild west. And it will shake out. Just like I've lived through so many hype cycles. I mean, you know, I lived through interactive television. I lived through transmedia. I lived through VR. That was a huge hype cycle at the beginning. And now VR is being used to train people, to train doctors, to train architects. It's being used instead of 10,000 people having to go to a training center. 10,000 headsets can be distributed. It's making things more realistic. It will fall into, and so will entertainment and game plan. It will fall back to where it does what it does best. So every new invention has a hype cycle. Everybody tries to figure it out. Everybody tries to give it a language. You know, the language of VR, everybody tries to get a set of rules and best practices. My whole thing is when, when there's a rule in immersive technology or immersive storytelling, I try and break it. I try and break my own rules because I don't want to be limited. I want to still be able to discover what more you can do. So the metaverse will find its way. I just want to go back to your point, Sarah. People were using technology, the printing press, to hurt, to lie, to cheat, to steal, long before we had social media. People were gossiping over the back fence. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is human nature. and. Unfortunately, it can be magnified and it goes whips. What is it? A lie travels 100 million times faster than the truth. And yes, it amplifies. I think that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the amplification. One of the big questions I have in the metaverse, because I'm looking at the metaverse as, of course, a storytelling platform and a place to tell new stories and a way to tell new stories and not new stories, old stories, new ways. But I think there is always going to be nuclear power for good or for evil. There are always going to be those tools that people will use in different ways. One of the issues 
I think about with the metaverse is governance. Well, this country, you know, years ago when I was running for office in the Television Academy, John Landgraf said to me, well, I think the Television Academy, not unlike these United States, might be ungovernable. And the truth is, this country is ungovernable. Really? I mean, anything is ungovernable. So you look at Facebook and you go, oh, my gosh, they were unable to regulate what was going on there. How will they govern a metaverse? And then there's the other other little things like interoperability. How can you go from one metaverse to the next? Because maybe Facebook won't be the only giant metaverse there is. Whenever there is disruption, there is always the opportunity for something new, some new company, some disruptor to emerge. Facebook was a disruptor. Now they're institutionalized. Who will be the next disruptor? And will it come in the metaverse? You know, you look at cyberpunks and cyber apes in the NFT world and you go, oh my God, none of this is regulated. And some people are getting ripped off and some people are making a lot of money. That too will settle out. A lot of people, buzzwords, hype, all of that. This is why I try and stay kind of relaxed now because I... I learned my lessons in the past. There's a lot of money to be made in a hype cycle. But you know me, Sarah, for a long time. You know I've never done anything for the money. Because early in my life, when I did stuff for the money, I got burned. I got all the wrong reasons. It never worked out. Well, you do it now for the passion and the cause to better somebody else. I think that's the power of storytelling in its truest format. The heartbeat of it is being authentic and doing it for good. And I'm just, and I'm not ripping on the metaphors and bad people. There are so many industries that Marjorie and I have dealt with just recently, the past month or two for another company that we're like, oh my God, they're making billions of dollars a day, but it's like the Wild West where they're so easy to do harm and to steal and to hide monies and micro dollars. And it's just, you know, we have this podcast, Global News Watch, under Media Maven's podcast that Marjorie and I are co-hosting with one of the top military intelligent, I'm going to mess up Nick's title, aren't I? <laughs> military intelligence, security and defense for the military CIA. He's one of ABC's top security analysts, the most badass human being we've ever met. And one of our previous podcast with him to drop every month was the drone. We use the drones, how everybody loves drones. And and I, I love the hyper circle that we're talking about. But it's, you know, you to your point, Brian, we're looking at how great technology is. There's always good and evil to both sides. You know, look at what's going on with these drones. Is it is Iran or Iraq? Remember we talked yeah. about that? Yeah, the one that went auto. Like there was a drone that actually killed somebody without being programmed too. It kind of Start, it's the Skynet of the yeah. world, but it went off. It just used artificial intelligence and it took somebody out. It was a huge story like um, eight months ago. And that's that's where they're going. Government's using it. You know, I mean, it's just technology's technology. And I think there's so many hyper circles that we know so many people that are an expert in this when it's all hyped up. And then when the next hyper circle comes around, they jump to that topic. And then the next I one. I always worry about know. anybody who declares themselves an expert. I feel I'm an expert. I'm like, <laughs> I know exactly what I've done. So funny. So much storytelling. I'm talking to these people. Oh, well, I was in ARVR. Then I was in crypto. Then Bitcoin. Now metaverse. Then me. I'm like, what the hell do you actually do? Because I'm so boring because I've done the exact same thing for 14 years. Public relations and experiential marketing and PR. Go to market strategy. My story, my story has not changed. I think since I met Marjorie, law for digital mobile and producing. I feel like we talk to so many people and their stories change. Talk about storytelling. I got the same story. uh, You know what? I, I just think if I may wax philosophical for a moment, I think sometimes fear is the motivating factor for people. Life can be a really wonderful place when you have nothing left to prove when you don't have anything to prove to somebody or you're not doing something for acceptance or you're not, you're not run by ego. And we all have egos and they're very necessary. I'm not saying don't. But you never run your business. I've been quoted in articles I've been in in books. I, my big thing that I always lead or end with when I do interviews and shit, never run your business by your ego. It's never going to end well. Right. But what I'm saying is you may be conscious of that. But other people who are trying to make their way in the world or make their fortune or make their name for themselves, they may first see an opportunity in VR and then they may first see the opportunity in crypto. 
I mean, I could be accused of jumping from platform to platform, but I see every platform as a storyteller. So in my context, it's like, how can I use this to tell a story? But I think fear is such a, a motivator, even if people don't know they're being motivated by the need to prove something or the fear that they won't be accepted. And so I always look and I always say, well, whether they say something or not, or whether it's obvious or not, what is the motivation behind this person? What is it that they're doing? And, you know, I had a real interesting come to Jesus moment, as you would say, with a person that I've been friends with for many years who had done some harmful things and basically apologized to me and then told me what he had learned from those experiences. And I just thought to myself, wow, this was something I never would have expected. But I know that that person faced their fears in life. And that's what enabled that sort of moment of, well, let me go to Brian and let me talk to him about this and, and explain. And, you know, it's incumbent upon me to operate from a place where I'm at least willing to forgive, even if I can't forgive in that moment. So I think a lot of the things when people move from job to job and, and there's a lot of hype and social media amplifies that hype. Like some of the stuff I read, I might go, oh my God, that person seems so lost to me. But then I think, well, you know what? They're on their journey. They're on their path. They're on their story. They are learning from what's happening to them. And whether they get the lesson or they repeat the pattern 10 times till they get the lesson, that's not up to me. That is not, I'm not here to teach anybody. I'm here to, this is why I have a hard time with gurus and people who preach. And just go right back to storytelling, Sarah. If someone shares their personal experience or their story, I'm into it. But if someone's preaching at me, I'm gone. You know, so when you talk about authenticity and people who deem themselves as experts, I would love to hear the story of how they ended up where they ended up. What was the reason they chose to get into that business? What attracted them to the NFT business? What attracted them? You know, what is their motivation? That's what I want to know. And so, and, you know, Marjorie, Sarah, we, we all know a lot of people who are, what do they call it? Hot air balloons. <laughs> and yet their behavior may be bad, but I, you know, I choose this point of view that the person is not bad, the behavior is, so that I can see some sort of goodness. I've worked really hard in my life to get to that point because without being too maudlin, you know, I was abused as a kid. And so coming out of that environment and having to protect yourself and shut down and then finally and, and expect to be hurt and expect to be abused because that's how your world was defined. But come out of that space and to realize just the fear. And I, I have to tell you, it takes an awful lot to forgive an abuser. And that, that has given me a, a really unique perspective on the world. And so when I get upset about things right now, or I read about somebody doing something that I think is, that has less integrity, or, you know, how did they get that? Or my next question to myself is, okay, you know what? Keep your eyes on your own work. And that's why social media, if I'm inspired by social media, that's great. But if it distracts me from my mission or doing my own work, that is not so great. And so this is why I sort of, I'm very, I use social media mindfully. Is there such a thing? Well, I think you just said something like so powerful and profound, but it's about using that story to find your purpose or tell your purpose in a way that's, as we said, genuine and authentic, which I think is really what we should be using these tools for is like that genuine story. Cause those are the beautiful stories, the ones that are true and genuine, not the ones that kind of are made up by media or fake news. Maybe what would be so interesting is your storyteller. When you sit down to write a story, what do you value most? What's your process in creating characters, worlds, etc.? Maybe some tips of the trade. Wow. Well, you know, we, Allison Norrington and I do a podcast as well called The Story Hour, and it's video and audio. And today we had Catherine Clinch on, and she was showing her mind maps for the way she writes stories. And it was brilliant, but so very alien to me because I've never used index cards. I've never done any of that. I've just written and written and written and written. And I think you know when you're getting away with something as a writer and you go, well, that's not good enough. I think you kind of know. But usually the way it goes, and the same thing happened to me when I was 
the songwriter. Usually the way it goes is I get an inspiration example. So the book, The Future is Faster Than You Think, combined with the book Lifespan, which is talking about technology and medicine and longevity, and just my knowledge and being an environmentalist, all of a sudden, I'm on this like clubhouse with Bernie Sue and a couple other people. And it was just a very small room. And suddenly the story just materialized where I thought, well, you know what? What if the longevitists, they were about people living longer. They want the establishment to recognize them. The establishment is the enemy for them because it's the medical establishment that doesn't believe in what they're doing, blah, 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 blah. But then you have the environmentalists, right? And the environmentalists want to preserve the planet. Well, how are you going to preserve the planet if there are more people living longer? So what if there were three circles here? One was the establishment and the politicians. One were the longevitists, and the other were the environmentalists. Well, the environmentalists, they've always been the good guys. But what if they turn and they become the bad guys because they don't want people to live longer? And what if they're both fighting the establishment and the establishment is fighting them? And what is the name of this story? Well, the name of the story is longevity because everybody wants longevity. The political people in power in the establishment, they want longevity. They want to be in there forever. The environmentalists, they want the planet to have longevity. They want it to last forever. And the longevities, they want to live forever. So that came to me. And it's like, in my process now, that's gelling. What I recognize is, boy, I'm going to need environmental experts over here as consultants. I'm going to need longevities. I'm, I'm going to have government. But I have a little notebook that I carry around, right? And I make notes in that notebook. And... When that story is ready to come out, it will be ready to come out. Another example is a story that I wrote back as a play back in 1994. The reason I remember the year is because we were supposed to have a reading of the play and instead we had an earthquake. And so, but that play came from, I had written a song with Stephen Schwartz for Heartstrings, which is a musical that was touring the country. And we said, okay, we're going to do this as a musical. And then Stephen got involved with Disney and a friend of mine is director said, well, why don't you write his play? Long story short, it's called Thanksgiving. It takes place over three family Thanksgivings. It's a comedy about life, death, and being caught in between. And I finished it and life took over. Well, today I had the opportunity for the first time in 15 years to send that play out to prospective producers. And I thought, isn't this interesting that a story that you've written so many years ago may have its own timeline? And they have its own timing. So I just keep writing. I just, when I get an idea, I write it down. I think it's a collaboration between me and some sort of spirit guides. Because when I wrote my book, when I wrote Hole, that book, not a pigtail, when I wrote Hole, that was like I was sitting in an airport. I'd had major, I was working with a very good friend of ours, Sarah, at a television production company. And the show that we were working on together completely crashed and burned. And I was in an airport flying back to Los Angeles when this had happened. And I literally heard in my head, give us 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, you'll have a book and the name of the book will be whole. And so all I did was set aside writing time for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, I had a book. Completely different process than writing a play. Completely different process than the script for My Brother's Keeper. Completely different. So it comes to me in different ways. And I sort of just accept that that might be the way that it's coming. And sometimes it gets finished and sometimes it don't. I am really good at procrastinating. I mean, that's how I end up cooking. <laughs> that's my, think, that's my that's destructive just, procrastination, I call it. I think that's just life, though. I mean, everything we do today may not, we may not have the answer for tomorrow, but somewhere in our story, there is something of inspiration, motivation that maybe in a month, six months, three years, five years, when we tell it, it has more of a value impact you know, than it does oh, today. And that's not like what we talked about. People do tell very happy, very painful stories where they find this light in the tunnel, but it takes years or months for them, whether it's be brave enough, whether timing, whether something, you know, life's going on to where they're finally feel, okay, it's my time to tell my story. It's my journey. There's no timeline. That we well, can tell me you're about. talking about individual stories. Yeah. But I would tell you as a writer that Everything that I have written that has characters, each one of those characters is a piece of me. Each one of those characters is a, is a part of my identity that I'm able to draw on past experiences. And Marjorie, I just wanted to say, 
If you want to know what my personal deep secret is, it's meditation. Because if I didn't meditate, I wouldn't be able to make enough space for these stories to come through or for inspiration to like and inspire, inspiration, inspire, inspire breathing is in that word. So to stop and to breathe and to meditate. So that's my secret. But to your point, Sarah, if it's not an individual story, I can have myself as an individual show up in every character I write. Isn't that what all writers are about? Whether from movies, a sitcom, everything across the board, they're not just unless you're super creative in the horror genre, which is a little bit scary if you apply the horror genre to this conversation at this point. But everybody brings out characters that has a piece of them that they want to be, whether it's from fear, happiness, they've always inspired to be every character in every story from virtual to big screen, small screens across the board. There's always pieces of you in every story, every character at some point in your life. And we're hoping the horror genre isn't part of that conversation, right? Because <laughs> I just yeah, want to reference that. I've experienced enough horror in my life that I would prefer not to write horror stories. But I, I wanted to add something to that because I look at the characters like when I was writing Thanksgiving, I think I inherently ask myself, what if... So I had the story of Thanksgiving takes place in, in 1991, actually. And it's the story about twin brothers. One is gay, one is straight. One is dying of AIDS over those three years. Well, that is based on my own experience of working within the AIDS community. The parents are based in a large part. The mother is based on my own mother. The father is kind of an amalgam of different fathers that I would imagine or had experienced people who had been father figures to me. And then I said, well, what if, what if there were brothers? What if there were twin brothers? One was gay and one was straight. What if the parents had been divorced? What if when the father, when the mother remarried, what if her husband had died? What if, what if, what if? And all of a sudden I have this extended family of the brother that's sick, his best friends, his straight twin brother, and he has a different girlfriend every Thanksgiving. Until the final Thanksgiving, when the nurse that becomes Danny, the main character's nurse, when he falls in love with her. So there's a gift out of this person being sick. And then there's a monologue at the end that has not changed since the very first draft of the play, where Danny is leaving the world. And so he's leaving this video behind. That when we did the first reading, I forgot to take notes. I cried so hard during the play and laughed so hard during the play that I forgot to take notes. But it was based on what if. Well, what if? And I'm going to tell you one experience. And Marjorie, I think you'll love this. I was riding on a train and it was the end of Act Two. And there was a call from the hospital to the Thanksgiving dinner. And they said, oh, my God, Anne is just the best friend. And Danny, you're at the hospital. And, and then the act ended because I had to go to dinner. And so I rushed and I ended the act. I got off the train and went to dinner. And I said at dinner, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know, because eventually the characters tell you what to write. They, you live in them and they live in you. And often I go through postpartum depression after a story is done because I miss the world that I've created. Long story short, you come back and at the beginning of Act 3, it's Anne that's in the hospital and she has slipped on the ice and broken her arm. And it's Danny, you think, because he's he has AIDS. It's Danny, you think. And it's Danny that has to take care of her. And that was a total surprise to me. Total surprise to me. And then in the end, in the third act, there's the juxtaposition because Anne is finally, after many years, finally having the baby that she wants so much. And at the same time that Danny is experiencing the pain of dying, she's experiencing the pain of labor. And that juxtaposition may sound trite the way I'm telling it right now, but I have to say, in, in a woman named Jenny Sullivan, I had an absolutely wonderful dramaturge, and that juxtaposition works really beautifully because you see the beginning of life and you see the end of life, and that's what the play is about. It's about life, death, and being caught in between. And so it all came from what ifs. Wow. And I love I love the what ifs because that's like a sliding doors. That's a, even Marvel's doing the what ifs, but it's that point where everybody looks at their life and they're like, what if I didn't meet that person? What if I didn't, you know, go to that event? What if I didn't do this? And there are so many what if. And what if there are so many, what if there are so many positives to be drawn from a negative experience? You know, that's where the storytelling comes in. I mean, they always say what art imitates life or life imitates art. 
So when you look at the good and the bad, you got to kind of look back, well, wait, there was something about what I saw or experienced that I brought to life. Okay, this is really cheesy as we wrap our podcast. The what if, because I'm like a what if girl and my I, I, some of my friends and my sisters get so mad when I have to make a big decision. We are not playing what if, Sarah. We're not, I go, no, no, we're all about what if. We all three live in Southern California. Stupid, cheesy ads. There's always a if, like to what you guys are talking about. There's always a positive out of the if. We're all about the if. Notice Cal if or Fornia has an if in it, and we all live in Southern California. I think that I don't think that's cheesy at all. Uh, you know, it wasn't. I thought you were going to ask me. Go to California. Where's your what if? Go to California to find your what if. You know what? I was so motivated to move to California. I was sitting in a movie theater in New York. I was in, watching Ten, and all of a sudden, I heard, "It's time to leave. Go to California." I literally heard that in my head. And so I sold my apartment, gave, had a party, gave away everything I owned, got my Honda Civic and drove to California. So that was my, what if? I was convinced I was making the mistake of my life by the time I hit Chicago, <laughs> but I kept going forward. There was one other thing I wanted to add. You know, I'm a, I'm a coach for authors. I'm a book coach and sometime editor. And what I have discovered is that the authors that I have worked with, I'm constantly saying, I need more of you. I need more of your experience. I need you to share more of you. Now, these are nonfiction stories that, that these two authors I'm talking about are telling. And I said, I need to know how you felt about that. I need to know what your initial impression was. Did that make your skin crawl? Well, yeah, it did. Well, then why don't you tell me that in the book? So I'm constantly asking writers for more of them, even if they're writing fiction. I need more of you in this. I don't need you. It's the difference between someone living an idea of a relationship and really having a relationship. You know, it's that kind of stuff. It's that authenticity, Sarah, that you are talking about. So it's like, if you're a storyteller, you're going to have to go through emotions. You're going to have to share the deepest part of you if you want to have a quality story. I just watched, I freaking love Wes Anderson. And I just watched French Dispatch. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, that is so brilliant. So many colors, so many, no wonder every actor in the world wants to work with this director. Because even in the craziness that he creates, there is this thread of authenticity that is just beautiful. And I can find the same thread of authenticity in the morning show, where the writing and the directing, it's all beautiful and brilliant. I think when people are writing their idea of something instead of writing the something, that's where things go wacko. Hmm. I think that's a good note to end the podcast on. But- this has been a blast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually the interviewer. So to be interviewed, is, is I love that. It's, it's great fun. I'm learning some lessons <laughs> as an interviewer. Everybody yeah, has a story to tell. And uh, what I, one of the things I love, I mean, besides all the obvious about having my own podcast is... I'm just meeting so many people who have such beautiful stories to tell or tragedies they were able to pull the inspiration from, from sports, tech, entertainment. And it's always good. And like, I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, everybody has an opinion, but like, I love having this girl as my co-host because I think you need difference of a perspectives to make you look back and realize, you know what? I should have seen it that way. I should have thought about it that way. So like, I just love that we're here to tell the story. And that's the reason why we did the podcast. Well, I was on your butt like 12 months ago and I was on Marjorie's butt last year. And then life happened. I swung her back in because we're giving you a platform and a voice to tell your story. I think that's why I beat in PR. I created Media Mavens. I'm giving you a, another platform to tell your story. And that's oh, yeah, so they didn't ask me. I told you to what I was doing. And that was great. I never know how to answer that question at parties. So what do you do? Or what are you doing? Life. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing life. I'm doing, okay, maybe one day the shiny bauble attracts me. And so I'm doing the shiny bauble. Or maybe today, a challenge most of my life has been to make a pie crust from scratch without a mixer and without a food processor. And I actually did it. And so what am I doing? Well, today I'm making a pot, you know? So you weren't asking me that. You were asking me how I felt about things, which is completely different than what do you do? Well, life is a full-time job. That's what people don't understand. No matter what we're doing, there's so many chapters of our book that makes up our lives. Life is what we do. And what I think the three of us on this podcast 
do very well given its life. But I am so glad you finally came on the show with us. I'm sorry I hemmed and hawed and took so long. Forgive me. <laughs> it's okay, because maybe Marjorie and I will have you back on on a cooking podcast show, because that is one we have not done. Bringing in uh, great- uh, You know what? I think that I could actually turn anyone into a cook. I could coach anybody. I think we need Brian Seth Hurst Podcast 2.0, and we do a live one, and then we get in the kitchen with you. I would love to have you in the kitchen. I don't, when you come to the new house, everybody's welcome. When you, when you come to the new house, we are on a podcast. Not everybody's, welcome. Not everybody's welcome to this podcast. Okay, so real quickly, yeah, well, I'm so excited to see you live and in person. I've known you for so long and loved you forever. So it'll be so good for Marjorie and I to come up and see you guys on for the event that we're not going to mention because we're on a podcast. But it was so amazing having you on, Brian. For people who want to reach out to you, I think there are so many aspects of this. Just DM me on Instagram at BS Hurst. It is the fastest way to get to me and you don't have to what, go. What is, what is, what is, what is, tell us again what your handle is to reach you. On Instagram, it's at B is in boy, S is in Sam, H-U-R-S-T. Please, please, please subscribe to the Happenstance Chef channel on YouTube. And you can also follow at Hop Chef on Instagram as well. But the easiest way is to DM me. It's just, you know, I get a lot of people approaching me that way. Yeah. I don't check LinkedIn regularly. I don't check Facebook enough, you know, but if you DM me on Instagram, it turns up on my phone. But I will ask you what you want. I will say, what is it that you want? What do you want? Who are you? Why you why you text me on social media of all things? No, I'm excited to have you back on the show, but it was wonderful having you on, Brian. So thank you for joining us on Media Mavis Podcast. It was a pleasure. I had a great time and yeah, thank you so much. It was a was a it was a joy. I really enjoyed it. So for everybody, Brian Seth Hurst, Instagram, DM at BS Hurst. On Instagram. Until then, this is Sarah Miller, Marjorie Hey, signing off. And we'll see everybody next week on Media Mavens Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or want to download past episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, please visit MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.